Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Is our planet's glass half empty or half full? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. In their 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Paul and Ann Ehrlich warned of the dangers of overpopulation. These included mass starvation, societal upheaval, and environmental ruin. Half a century later, not all of their dire predictions have come to pass. But unless we do more to alleviate the world's problems, Ehrlich still sees little hope on the horizon. I'm very pessimistic about the future, but very optimistic about what we could do. I have to say that I've become less optimistic about what we could do, for among other things, of course, because we're not trying any of it. Glass half empty, to be sure. But cognitive scientist Steven Pinker argues that despite dark headlines, in many ways, life is getting better for most of the planet. People are living longer. The uh, average lifespan across the globe is, is uh, about 72 years. Uh, global extreme poverty has been sinking. Probably less than 10% of the world today lives in a state of extreme poverty. 200 years ago, it was more like 90%. On today's program, Greg Dalton explores reasons for hope with Steven Pinker, author of Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. Later in the program, we'll hear from Paul Ehrlich, who is now a professor of population studies at Stanford University. Greg talked with Ehrlich earlier this year. First, here's Greg's conversation with Steven Pinker. So tell me how humanity is progressing in terms of poverty, disease, and early death. Well, when you measure dimensions of human well-being, you find to the surprise of many newsreaders, that, uh, that they're all improving. People are living longer. We, uh, the average lifespan across the globe is, is uh, about 72 years. For most of human history, it was about 30. Uh, global extreme poverty has been sinking. Probably less than 10% of the world today lives in uh, a state of extreme poverty. 200 years ago, it was more like 90%. And in fact, it's uh, fallen just by uh, three quarters just in the last three decades. War, wars in the sense, the classical sense of uh, battles between two uh, armies of nation states is becoming obsolete. The last one was the American invasion of uh, Iraq more than 15 years ago, and uh, rates of death and war have been falling. The, Though people uh, might cite Syria as there's still lots of uh, war within There's countries. still civil wars, yes. Civil wars, uh, yeah. civil wars in general um, kill fewer people than wars between countries, although the Syrian civil war is the worst war in a generation. Uh, it has sent the curve uh, creeping a little bit back upward, but it is still a fraction of what it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then uh, education, literacy. 
the natural state of humankind is to be illiterate. Now, 90% uh, of the world population under the age of 25 can read, it, read and write. You write about the optimism gap or optimism bias. That is that people look at their own lives through rose-colored glasses. Um, when it comes to divorce, illness, crime, those things happen to other people. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, we, we are. We as a species are, are subject to this strange bias where we, we, we all think that we're, uh, we're luckier than average. Now, that, this, that's nonsensical. You, you just, that, it's a contradiction in terms. But people think they're less likely than the average person. <laughs> we, live yes. we live in Lake Wobegon. We live in Lake Wobegon, absolutely. On the other hand, when you switch the question from uh, what is your life like to what is the country's life like, then people uh, turn from uh, Pollyanna to Eeyore. They become uh, pessimistic about the state of the country. They, they think that the nation's schools are failing, but their own uh, kids' schools? Oh, not bad. They think that uh, streets are, uh, their city are too dangerous to walk on. What about your neighborhood? Oh, it's pretty safe. So this, this is sometimes called the optimism gap. Uh, I think one journalist called it the I'm okay, they are not syndrome. And it does distort our uh, view of the, the, the state of the nation and the state of the world. So if the statistics say that humanity is progressing and we are wired for optimism, then why aren't we Americans happier? There's the World Happiness Index put out by the United Nations. The U.S. has never cracked the top 10. Uh, in fact, it dropped four spots in 2018. So if what you're saying is true, why aren't we happier? Yeah, it's, it's something of a mystery why the United States underperforms in happiness. Now, the United States is, in general, a happy country. Most people, most Americans say they're happy, and we're not in the top 10, but we are in the top uh, 15 or, or top 20. But we, we punch below our wealth in terms of our, uh, our prosperity. Because mm. in general, prosperous countries are happier, and indeed, the United States is, on the whole, a happy country, but not as happy as you'd expect, considering how rich we are. And I don't think anyone really knows the answer. Partly it's because the, uh, it may be because of the um, uh, large uh, degree of inequality, uh, so that even though on average we're richer, there are an awful lot of people who aren't so rich. Uh, it may be because our social safety net is weaker, so that people, uh, even if they're doing okay, they worry that they're one illness away from ruin. It may also be because there's a, a kind of disillusionment from the uh, American high of the 50s and 60s, when everything just seemed to be great, whereas the, America was a, a beacon of freedom throughout the world, spreading peace and prosperity, uh, holding up the international order. Then there was the disillusionments of the, the 70s, uh, which uh, have uh, gotten worse in, in uh, the last few years. But the, the honest answer is no one knows for sure. You mentioned inequality, and some people have said that, that it's the way you approach statistics, that, that the macro aggregate sort of uh, doesn't always uncover the concentration of wealth, that a lot of the gains recently, the stock market, have gone to very few people, which is, can be distorted depending on the statistics. Used. Well, that, that's a good reason why the, the stock market is not a very good index of, of, of uh, human well-being. So, yeah, I don't concentrate on the stock or market. The con or the economy. Yeah. Well, it depends what the uh, the GDP per capita by itself can be misleading because it doesn't take into account the distribution and the range. Uh, on the other hand, uh, globally, uh, as I mentioned earlier, extreme poverty is is uh, sinking, uh, plunging, really. Right. Uh, and even in the United States, although there has been stagnation of wages for the last um, 30, 35 years, if you take into account the government benefits, the, the hidden welfare state. We don't tend to think of the United States as having a, a, a robust welfare state. But when you look at things like the earned income 
Credit, the uh, Social Security, food stamps, Medicare. There actually is a pretty a lot of redistribution in the United States. Um, and uh, when you take that into account, then the rate of poverty has uh, fallen. Uh, and if you take into account what people can afford, that is how much food they can afford, how much clothing, uh, then, then uh, by that measure too, poverty has fallen in the United States. You write about eco-pessimists. What's your take on environmentalism and eco-pessimists? Well, I uh, I think like, like like most reasonable people, I think that the preserving the environment is one of our our, uh, our great imperatives, one of our highest priorities. But there is there has grown up around the uh, the environmental movement a kind of philosophy that uh, that I think has become counterproductive, which is that um, humans are a kind of a scourge, a kind of cancer on the planet that mm. uh, we buy. Um, uh, starting the industrial revolution and seeking economic growth, we uh, are are digging our own graves. That the only solution is to um, uh, reverse economic growth, live a simpler life like our ancestors a couple of hundred years ago, uh, and uh, get back to a, a kind of pristine harmony with with the land. Um, there's a, an alternative. Uh, approach to protecting the environment, sometimes called eco-pragmatism or eco-modernism, associated in, in part with uh, Stuart Brand here in the mm-hmm. Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, author of the Whole Earth Catalog in the 1970s, which in large part was responsible for, for uh, kick-starting the environmental movement. Sure. But Stuart and, and others have pointed out that uh, there have been many benefits to our capture of energy and deploying it to make our lives uh, longer and safer and and, uh, and richer, to allow us to travel, to heat our homes. Uh, but we should see environmental protection as a way of getting the greatest human benefit with the least cost to the environment. That's going to involve a heavy uh, reliance on technology, both existing and new, to give people what they want and what they're not going to give up uh, while protecting the environment to the greatest extent possible. It'll never, it'll never be perfect, as uh, one economist put it. Uh, there's an optimal amount of pollution in the environment, just as there's an optimal amount of dirt in your house. Mm. Uh, cleaner is better, but not at the expense of everything else in life. Yeah. Now, we're not doing all that well, but we are. But in, in many regards, uh, a number of corners have been turned and the state of the environment has been uh, improving um, in terms of uh, urban waterways, in terms of uh, air quality other than CO2, uh, and most consequentially for human life in terms of indoor air pollution from burning dung and wood in the developing world, in terms of consuming uh, water contaminated with human waste, there's been improvement in all of those measures of pollution. And the current administration is trying to roll back a lot of the safeguards and policies that made that possible. Indeed, it's horrifying. And my own view is that um, the the, uh, people who are concerned about the environment have, in a way, almost done themselves a disservice by... Uh, failing to note the tremendous progress that's been made Mm. as a result of the very environmental regulations that the Trump administration is seeking to dismantle. Because if environmentalists say, well, the environment's getting worse and worse and worse, well, then the the Scott Pruitts of the world will say, well, what good are all these, these regulations? All they're doing is constraining economic growth and uh, putting businesses uh, 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 into bankruptcy. 
and and we have to make a choice as to whether we want to be prosperous or have a, or protect the environment. It's one or the other. Now, that's uh, what, what the environmental movement, I think, should be emphasizing, is that we actually not only can have both, but we have enjoyed both, thanks to the combination of improvements of technology and improvements in uh, legislation protecting the environment. Since the EPA was formed in the 1970, even though uh, there are more Americans, we've, uh, we drive more miles, our GDP has gone up, but the rate of, the, of uh, emissions of the five major air pollutants have all gone dramatically down by an average of, I, I believe, uh, more than, more than uh, 50 or 60%. Now, this is, uh, it's not enough, but the last thing we should be doing is undoing the progress that we have been making, and I think it's worth emphasizing that we can have economic growth and increased protection of the environment if we are smart about both technology and regulation. One person that you cite in your book, Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, Stanford uh, biologist, you've called him a misguided moralist uh, on Twitter. I'd like to, to play a, a clip of him. I asked him recently in an interview about your book on enlightenment, and here's what he had to say. There's still 600 million people in India who have to defecate outside because they don't have toilets. Uh, and the issue is the violence that we have committed against those people and all future generations by working so hard to destroy our life support systems and to use up the energy slaves, uh, often for ridiculous reasons, uh, that we took from them and that we inherited. Uh, it's a complex thing, but just saying everything is better is fine if you're a not-too-bright uh, faculty member at Harvard. But if you're an Indian villager uh, or a uh, member of a Chinese minority or are living up in the mountains and so on, uh, the world doesn't look quite so bright. So that's Paul Ehrlich. Yeah. You know, and, and echoing so the uh, critique in, uh, well, a review in the New York Times, which was humanity is okay, but don't ask about individuals. Yeah, first of all, what Ehrlich is totally wrong. The, in fact, it's the lives of people in China and India have, that have improved the most dramatically. As we mentioned, extreme poverty. These are the people at the bottom end of the scale. Have uh, The number in extreme poverty has been plummeting. It's actually the people who are complaining are the, are the Americans. The Indians and Chinese actually have a much more uh, optimistic attitude because they've seen their, their lives dramatically improve. And the idea that the reason that they don't have toilets is because we've stolen them from them is uh, historically, I would say, a little bit inaccurate. It's not like several hundred years ago the world had toilets and American and British invaders came to India and plundered them. The natural state of humankind is not to have improved water or to have uh, sanitary facilities or to have energy to, to heat our homes or move us around. Uh, there's a, 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 um, a big difference in what you think of as the state of nature. If you have a romantic view that life was... Uh, uh, ideal in the past, the kind of uh, uh, fall from Eden, the Jean-Jacques Rousseau view, then you might think that modernity has been a terrible mistake and we've got to reverse it. Then if you look back to how people actually did live, to the high rates of violence, to the uh, high rates of child and infant mortality, to the life expectancy at birth of about 30, then uh, the, the fact that people were, were uh, bound to their village, uh, had, had no awareness of how life was lived elsewhere on the planet, you realize that, that modernity has brought us many gifts at a cost that we, we should not be paying indefinitely, namely damage to the environment. But the challenge should be how do we get the benefits of modernity without the uh, costs in environmental degradation? You write that anthropogenic climate change is the most vigorously challenged scientific hypothesis in history. You also say, quote, humanity never faced a problem like it. 
So talk about climate change. Well, yeah, that, that's one area in which we, uh, um, by most measures, we have not made progress. Uh, I think it, the, the threat is uh, severe. There's a good scientific consensus on that. Uh, and it's humanity's greatest challenge is because so much of our lives depend on uh, energy, which in turn means uh, has meant fossil fuels. Now, there is a, um, a, a, a process that... Uh, all industrialized countries have undergone that they have uh, relied less on carbon for their um, energy sources. That is, uh, the um, proportion of uh, energy that comes from carbon as opposed to other sources uh, tends to reach a peak uh, when a country industrializes and then falls. And that that happened in England first with a switch from uh, wood to coal to oil to uh, other sources to renewables and, and nuclear. Happened later to the United States, and it's happened to China and India. Now that by itself can't solve the climate crisis because uh, if we're using more energy altogether, even if a smaller fraction of it is from burning carbon, it could, it still means that more CO2 is being uh, emitted and other uh, greenhouse gases. But it does show that modernization and industrial economies aren't inherently tied to uh, to, to uh, flaming carbon, that the, the natural progression is to move away from it, which we have to figure out how to accelerate dramatically. And so what does accelerate that? Is it human ingenuity? Is it technology? What, what are the accelerants? Because this year we've seen a lot of fires, a lot of heat records, uh, destabilization, and scientists say that this is going to not only continue, but accelerate. Well, the, the biggest, uh, I mean, the, the improvements that we've enjoyed so far have come from switching from more carbon-intensive fuel energy sources to less carbon-intensive energy sources, from coal to oil to uh, gas, uh, and then to uh, uh, nuclear and renewable renewables. Uh, I think that the, the my own view is that the um, the two things that need to be done are a uh, are carbon pricing, so that uh, every economic decision that everyone makes factors in the damage to the environment that comes from burning carbon, and improvements in technology in in uh, zero carbon energy sources. And you write that uh, people have difficulty thinking at scale, and climate is so big. So I'm interested in you wearing your psychologist hat, how people process climate. Because if there's a, a man with a gun uh, with the intent to do harm, you know, the news, cable news channels get all worked up and people respond directly. But with something that's perceived to be abstract and long-term as climate, the human brain seems to process that differently. Yeah, so there are some cognitive uh, limitations that uh, it's very hard to think in terms of um, um, millions of tons, billions of tons uh, of, of CO2 or terawatts versus uh, yeah. gigawatts. No one knows what those uh, are. Yeah, you have to really write down the number of zeros unless you, there's that. There is the, um, uh, the, the fact that our... Uh, fear circuitry is engaged by immediate threats like snakes and spiders and, and um, tiger and in the woods with, yeah. tiger and men, men with with uh, daggers and malevolent agents sit, trying to do us in but I think there are actually two other factors that are far more consequential and in this regard I'm, I kind of diverge from a lot of my fellow cognitive psychologists who point to these cognitive biases. And th those cognitive biases are real. Uh, people who've read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, or Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project, about the work of Kahneman and Tversky, mm -hmm. uh, will, will show how we have these cognitive limitations. But I think the two far bigger factors are, first of all, the fact that, that um, uh, carbon pollution is a tragedy of the commons, uh, which is to say that um, everyone 
uh, benefits from the uh, fossil fuels they burn in heating their homes, mm-hmm. getting getting around, whereas the costs are uh, are diffuse. And if I make a personal sacrifice, if I if I walk to work, or if I uh, shiver in the winter, or or sweat in the summer, um, it really doesn't isn't going to save the climate. Only if everyone does it. But everyone making the decision by their own lights thinks, well, why should I be the one that, to make the sacrifice? Uh, if I do, it will bring no benefit to humanity and harm to, to me. Presuming you don't like that walk to work, maybe you enjoy that well, walk no, to work. Well, no, I, I personally do, so yes. yes. And I wrote That's a bike here, but yeah, but, right. you know, because some people say there's a false trade-off that they beat the green economy involves price and sacrifice, and that that's not always the case. Sometimes no, that's green right. is better. Uh, indeed. And, and in fact, we should make it... My electric it as, car is far better than my gasoline car. Yeah, it, we should make it as, as, as uh, little the case as possible uh, That is with improvements in technology. Absolutely. But nonetheless, at any level, any benefit to the environment is going to be uh, trifling at the individual level, but the cost to the self is going to be huge. Right. So every person rationally thinks, well, why should I give up my air conditioning? Uh, it's not going to save the planet. It's going to make life miserable for me. That's why... Some of the decisions have to be centralized while you need uh, uh, carbon pricing imposed by government. Uh, indiv- voluntary sacrifices, you know, unplugging your chargers and uh, right. uh, 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 bringing your own coffee cup to work. They're nice, and I do them, and I pose for posters saying other people should do them. That's not going to solve the problem. The other, you, In fact, you say they're a distraction. I think they're a distraction, yeah. So maybe I should stop volunteering for the, those, uh, those, those posters. Uh, the other pro- huge psychological problem, and this has uh, um, not been given enough attention, is uh, political tribalism. That once uh, climate yeah. change got branded a left-wing issue, it became a sacred cause for people on the right to deny it, to oppose it. And uh, since humans are ingenious rationalizers, if we have a a position that we want to defend because it's associated with our team, our tribe, the people that we respect, then we're we're pretty good at at, uh, spin-doctoring evidence to be consistent with it and dismissing evidence that's inconsistent with it. Uh, And uh, surveys have shown that the main predictor of denial of of man-made climate change is not scientific ignorance, but political ideology. The farther you are to the right, the more you deny uh, human-made climate change. And in fact, people who acknowledge uh, uh, climate change actually don't know a whole lot of, necessarily know a whole lot about climate, climate science. Often they're ignoramuses, but they just know that they're, you know, they're to the left of center and that's what you're supposed to believe. Conversely, if you're the right of center, you're supposed to deny it. So uh, part of the F- psychological wedge that we have to uh, insert in order to mobilize people around uh, climate change is to depoliticize it as much as possible. Th- these are, I-, I should credit this argument to Daniel Kahan at uh, uh, Legal Scholar at Yale. Right. So there's some, some climate deniers are highly intelligent. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to get into a debate with them unless you have right. spent a lot of time boning up yeah. because they, they'll be uh, clever litigators. They will have marshaled uh, every uh, 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 scrap of argument they can muster. One thing that I was really interesting to, interested to learn in your book was that you write that Pope Francis's encyclical backfired with conservative Catholics, which was backed up by, by a study. Why do you think that is the case? Why did the Laudato see the Pope's encyclical on climate change backfire with the very audience it was targeted at? 
Because well, um, that, that target, which are conservative Catholics, um, belong to a political coalition that is opposed to anything that the left supports. Uh, and uh, a, a litmus test, if you're uh, being a member of um, the American right in good standing, is to deny the existence of climate change. Um, and so partly it's arbitrary. It's like a tribal creed. Uh, mm. But also the fact that, that uh, Pope Francis uh, framed um, uh, the uh, environmental issues in terms of um, human rapacity, human evil, the, uh, the problems are economic growth and science and technology. We've got to get back to uh, the Bible. We've got to get back to Catholic dogma if we want to be uh, 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 good people. Um, uh, there may be some people who are receptive to that, but there are others who say, well, thanks, but I'd, I'd rather be comfortable and, uh, and, and, and have my car. Um, and uh, I, th- I, I think a better way of putting it is let's make the massive changes that we have to make so that people can get around uh, without, without burning carbon, without uh, emitting uh, oxides of nitrogen and sulfur dioxide and particulate matter into, into the air, not let's go back to a simpler and uh, a more puritanical lifestyle. Right. Voluntary virtue won't, won't do it. But how do we get beyond the tribalism? If tribalism is the root cause, we evolved yeah. in mammals, we evolved in small social groups. How do we get beyond that? The, the, the general answer is that our, our cognitive category of tribe is pretty plastic. I mean, we belong, we all belong to many tribes at once. We're, we're, we're Californians, we're Americans, we're uh, we're, we're Giants fans or Celtics fans. Uh, we're, we're, we're Cal alumni or Stanford alumni. Uh, so we have they're intersecting um, tribes that we belong to, and uh, want us to try to, to make the the salient tribe we belong to not aligned with policy, because policy actually affects. It's one thing to be a, a loyal to your school or to be a sports fan, because that's just fun. It's, there's no consequence. But if your tribal affiliation determines your opinion on climate change or taxation or, or f- involvement in foreign wars, that that is pernicious. Um, so the uh, it's not obvious how to do it in a hurry, but certainly having um, uh, people who are not branded as uh, as, as uh, champions or mascots for particular causes be affiliating affiliated with particular policies is important. In that regard, it it was unfortunate that one of the champions for uh, uh, combating climate change was um, Al Gore, the um, uh, Democratic vice president and candidate for president who put kind of a left-wing stamp on it. So part of it is to try to undo that, find people on the right who acknowledge the reality of climate change. Second is to try to, to disconnect uh, particular issues that, that need action, such as reducing carbon emissions, from philosophies and ideologies like romanticism, like degrowth, like anti-capitalism, that people may have other reasons not to sign on to, uh, and to dissociate possible remedies from um, the uh, ex- uh, acknowledgement of the existence of the problem in the first place. Now, I don't think that, for example, geoengineering is going to get us out of climate change, although it might buy a little bit of time. It might be a temporary stopgap to mitigate some of the, the worst effects. But that's not how we're going to, for, for, for many reasons. We can't just turn the ocean into, into uh, carbonic acid. Uh, however, there are one study showed that if you even mention the possibility of geoengineering, then people are more likely to at least acknowledge that, uh, that, that uh, uh, climate change is a problem. Now, this, of course, is illogical. How you solve a problem 
is independent of whether a problem exists. But if people don't think that acknowledging the problem commits them to some solution that they don't like, such as undoing mm-hmm. capitalism or undoing growth, mm-hmm. their minds are more open to the existence of the problem in the first place. You're listening to Climate One. Steven Pinker is a professor of cognitive science at Harvard and the author of Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Greg Dalton spoke with him about reasons for optimism in the face of global challenges like war, poverty, and climate change. Earlier this year, Greg sat down with Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich. He and his wife, Anne Ehrlich, wrote the 1968 bestseller, The Population Bomb. In it, they warned that the world's population was spinning out of control and that the outcome would be widespread famine and chaos. Here's Greg's conversation with Paul Ehrlich. One of the critiques of the book is often that it's, it's overly dark, it's doomsday, and what, what do you say that today? It's much darker today, and you can prove it. In other words, there's no, after all, we were worried then about the problems of feeding human society when there was three and a half billion people on the planet. Since then, something on the order of 200 to 500 million people have starved to death or died of um, nutrition-related illness. Now we've got way over 7 billion people. We have something on the order of 800 million, that's more than double the population of the United States, hungry and starving, and another billion or two who are micronutrient malnourished. And people always say, well, we don't have any food problem. Well, the people saying that, of course, usually don't. Uh, I don't have a food problem. Uh, I wish I had a little bit more of a food problem. But if you've ever traveled in poor countries, you can't miss the undernourished kids. Uh, And the fact that people are micronutrient malnourished means they can't function well in society. So when we try and get society to take action on our existential problems, uh, we have trouble doing it. Some organizations, Oxfam included, say that the world produces enough calories. It's a matter of distribution, getting them to the right place. Is that is that your view? At the moment, that's probably true. That is, uh, if we did everything right and distributed things fairly, uh, then everybody could have a decent diet. Of course, what do we distribute fairly? Uh, in, in places where there's a lot of hunger, the food isn't distributed fairly because the father has to get more than the kids or everybody starves. Uh, the, if you look at the problems of humanity, and that's one of the reasons that uh, I and my colleagues have put too much time into it, equity is a huge issue. Money isn't distributed fairly in the United States or anywhere else. Uh, human beings don't distribute stuff fairly. So one of our challenges is to find a government that will arrange things so that uh, even the people who are at the short end of the stick get more than enough to have a decent life. We don't do that even in the United States. So you're talking is, about wealth distribution, redistribution? Well, I, I, if you use the term redistribution, of course, you get into trouble. I use it all the time to get into trouble because the economists think that growth is the only thing that counts and efficiency is the only thing that counts, whereas I know, as every scientist knows, perpetual growth is the creed of the cancer cell. Uh, it can't occur, uh, and that equity uh, is, is going to require redistribution. You cannot get say, 8 billion people, which is where we're going to be very soon, 
all living uh, like the Koch brothers. It just can't be done. So we obviously need redistribution. Or eight billion people even look living like you and me. That oh yeah, would be a oh problem. yeah. No, by the by the way, when I say rich versus poor, which I may sometime in the program, I'm counting us in the rich. Uh, and uh, the problem of overconsumption, of course, is the other side of the coin. In other words, the the big problem for our life support systems is the aggregate consumption, the stuff that we extract from nature to use, and that's clearly the product of the number of people and the average per capita consumption. Saying it's only consumption is like saying, well, the area of a rectangle is only the width. It turns out when you multiply two things together, they both are equally important. And in this case, population and per capita consumption are what really important. And one of the huge things is many people like us consume too much. And then there's a several billion who don't get to consume enough. And that's one of the huge problems that's not normally discussed in those terms. Some people talk about voluntary restraint or virtuous restraint, you know, consuming less, not buying things on impulse, driving smaller cars, smaller houses. Do you think that kind of virtuous restraint is going to make a meaningful difference that humans will really do that? It may make a little difference, but um, it's not going to make a lot. We need joint social action. Uh, for example, uh, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of things, uh, People, when I was involved in one environmental organization, they were crazy about recycling. And recycling can be good. It can be bad also. It depends on where you are and what you're recycling. But the claim would be made if we push recycling, uh, then people will get more involved in the environment. And I would say true. It's also true that they could wheel their recycling bins past the three Humvees in the garage to the, to the curb and feel that they're being very environmentally sound. And the answer is we need huge changes. To give you an example from the demographic side, from population, uh, having one less child is the equivalent, if you have one less child, of you giving up driving entirely 20 times. In other words, giving up driving only saves the environment. In the climate area, this is in climate, a paper by Wynn et al., uh, that if you give up having a child, you save uh, 20 times as much greenhouse gas not going into the atmosphere as you would if you gave up driving entirely. For your whole life. For your whole life. So let's talk about climate. How has climate affected your projections looking into the future? Because you were pretty dark in 1968, and you say you're, it's darker now. How has climate figured well, into in that? Well, in 1968, we did discuss in the population bomb the fact that it's crystal clear to anybody who's thought about it. If you put crap into the atmosphere, you're going to change the climate. There was a lot of debate back then about whether it was going to be largely cooling or largely um, heating, which was coming. That's because in 1968, um, various people hadn't done the research to show that carbon dioxide, uh, the main greenhouse gas, was accompanied by another bunch of gases that almost accounted for another half of the warming. And that's what shifted things in the direction of warming. Uh, sadly, of course, then we thought that climate was going to be a big problem maybe around 2100. Of course, it's a big problem today, uh, and it's getting worse and worse. And again, uh, the morons in Washington are pulling out of the inadequate climate arrangement that went on in Paris. Um, this is the trouble with having people who are totally ignorant and greedy running a country, and that's our cacistocracy. And 
Other countries are almost as bad, but the U.S. is the most powerful nation in the world, and it is winning its war on the environment with the present administration. You say impacts today. How is uh, climate affecting food production? You know, it's often thought of as a future concern. How is it a media concern? Well, <clears throat> a lot of the emphasis given in the mass media is on sea level rise. Even here at Stanford campus in Palo Alto, California, uh, we'll be able to outwalk sea level rise. Uh, it's a relatively gradual process unless we're extraordinarily unlucky with the dynamics of the glaciers in Antarctica. My guess is we won't be. Uh, what we know for sure is places like Miami are going bye-bye in the relatively near future, going right now. In other words, they, they can't keep the water out coming up through the uh, rocks. Sunny day flooding. Yeah, right. right. Uh, but much more critical is the impact of climate disruption on agricultural systems. We're already seeing we were doing very well increasing the yields on basic crops. Humanity's feeding base uh, for non-protein is largely wheat, maize, uh, corn, and rice. Uh, and they're affected by higher temperatures. We're already seeing reductions in the rate of improvement there. They may even go on further. Uh, a lot of people at Stanford, like David Lobel, are working on this. Huge problem. Agriculture is utterly dependent upon climate. Uh, we do irrigate a lot, and that's very important, but the water for irrigation has to come somewhere. You may, in California, for example, the snowpack is getting in more and more trouble in the Sierra. That's the water storage for our summer agriculture. If, you, if it comes down as rain in the winter, it doesn't do any good for the farmers at all. Uh, so we're seeing impacts around the world on agriculture already from the amount of climate change we've seen from a relatively small influx of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, and it's going to get worse and worse because we're not taking the steps to do it. We're going, we're reversing it. We have, again, a government that's trying to destroy the environment because it has no clue that the environment is what supports them. But isn't it possible also that the grain belt, the corn belt, could reach up into Canada, that Russian uh, could have uh, arable land, that is comes new land comes into agricultural production because of the warming climate it could be a in, in some areas uh, you may get more production because of the climate change if the corn belt moves into canada the corn plants are going to have a lot of trouble growing on the canadian shield you got to develop the soils first before a a belt of uh, good agricultural land will actually shift. Developing the soils only take 10 or 20,000 years. And so after that, maybe we'll be able to grow a lot of corn in Hudson Bay uh, or on the Canadian Shield. But basically, I wouldn't wait around for it. And uh, of course, as it gets warmer in places like the United States, we're moving more and more to tropical agriculture. Tropical agriculture is traditionally less productive than temperate zone agriculture. Among other things, the pests go all year round in the tropics, whereas in the temperate zones, we have the benefit of a pest-controlled period called the winter, which allows us to get a lot of stuff grown better than we can in the tropics. The prospects for doing better with food uh, in terms of production are and I would say very shaky. And in terms of distribution, uh, I see things going in the wrong direction. We're caring less and less. We're putting less into redistribution of food, even though we've improved the systems for doing it. But there's less interest, uh, particularly in our government, in helping other people. 
Professor Ehrlich, you talked about uh, the capacity to grow more food, but that was the main critique of the population bomb is you underestimated the productivity gains, the green revolution. Uh, isn't that fair to say that you underestimated the world's capacity to, to generate a lot more food with new technology? It's fair and unfair because, first of all, uh, the estimates we took and cited were from agricultural economists. Uh, and I think the general mistake, which I certainly shared because I didn't know anything about it, I was talking to people that we cited that, that knew I'm no agricultural economist. I'm more of one now than I used to be. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the technology was clear. What we were worried about more than anything else was how rapidly it could spread. And what was underestimated was the brilliance of many subsistence farmers who knew a lot more about what they could do on their land uh, than a lot of the people who had industrial agriculture. But it certainly, there are a bunch of mistakes in the population bomb. Any scientist who is asked about his work 50 years before, particularly when it's a broad thing, uh, who still, still thinks exactly the same thing he thought 50 years before, is a pretty weak scientist. Steven Pinker at Harvard uh, has a new book called Enlightenment Now, and he's written a previous book saying that life is safer, longer, healthier, more prosperous, people are better educated, societies and cultures are more tolerant, more fulfilling, that there's more progress in humanity than you give it credit for. <laughs> uh, it's true that a relatively small group of people in Western societies with science um, and a certain form of progress, but with science, with the idea of democracy, which uh, was usually democracy for white men, but let's skip that and so on, uh, did make a lot of, quote, progress, end quote, in various areas. What's not usually mentioned by the Pinkers is, for instance, one of the main things that allowed that was slavery, to start out with, if you know your history, the role of slavery in the development of the West, absolutely gigantic. So slavery's in there. Then we adopted other people's energy slaves. In other words, it was made possible by using up the sun's energy stored in fossil fuels at a horrendously rapid rate and taking it from other people in the world. You know, the old line, about the Middle East. How did our oil get under their sand? Uh, and they're suffering to this day over our wars to get oil, which is the main thing that the West has fought over for many years. Uh, that science is still not clear whether it was a smart move. It came from agriculture. We moved into agriculture that allowed specialization. Specialization allowed industrialization. Industrialization allowed a moron an absolute moron, narcissist, to have the power to blow up civilization and destroy humanity and most of the animals on the planet. One single person. Is that an advantage? Uh, you know, I have my, there are questions. I live a very good life, but I've spent a lot of time with people who don't have that opportunity. But there are hundreds of millions of people in India and China who've moved out of poverty into the middle class. Now, you could say that China and India are paying a big environmental price for that material wealth. I lived in China in the late 80s. I go back now and the people are better fed, better clothed, better off. So can't you give some recognize that hundreds of millions of people have moved out of poverty better life, better health. You can recognize that. It's certainly true. Uh, there's still 600 million people in India who have to defecate outside because they don't have toilets. Uh, and 
The issue is the violence that we have committed against those people and all future generations by working so hard to destroy our life support systems and to use up the energy slaves, uh, often for ridiculous reasons, uh, that we took from them and that we inherited. Uh, it's a complex thing, but just saying everything is better is fine if you're a not-too-bright uh, faculty member at Harvard. But if you're an Indian villager uh, or a uh, member of a Chinese minority or are living up in the mountains or so on, uh, the world doesn't look quite so bright. Humans are a very adaptive species. That's that's why we're here. What are the prospects that we can adapt to a warmer world with more turbulent agriculture? We've adapted to some pretty uh, big challenges in the past. Can't we basically ride this out? Well, I'd like to hope we'll be able to. And in fact, uh, our research uh, is aimed primarily now at figuring how to avoid the same mistakes after the collapse. In other words, we're hoping the collapse won't be caused by a large-scale nuclear war, which will basically, for instance, people say, oh, don't worry, we, we won't need currency, we'll use Bitcoin. Use Bitcoin without electricity? Yeah, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're, we're approaching energy limits, which we may get around with quantum computing and so on and so forth, uh, but we're not going to get around the basic distribution and political problems. I, my view is, has been for a long time that I'm very pessimistic about the future, but very optimistic about what we could do. I have to say that over the last decade or so, I've become less optimistic about what we could do. Uh, for among other things, of course, because we're not trying any of it. In other words, right now we have deteriorating infrastructure in the United States. Our water handling infrastructure is going downhill fast. Water is absolutely essential. We should be not only rebuilding the infrastructure, but designing it for flexibility because we don't know where the water is going to be needed as the climate change. We're not doing a thing. Right. The system we've built is not uh, adequate for today. But just a few years ago, a lot of people were running around peak oil, peak oil, peak oil, that there would be peak supply. And then fracking comes along, a technological innovation supported in part by the U.S. government. And forecast this year, 2018, U.S. oil production could surpass Saudi Arabia. That was not foreseen five or 10 years ago. And now the peak oil people are pretty much quiet or they're talking about peak demand. But peak supply, this resource we were going to run out of is suddenly abundant. This is absolutely typical thinking, not yours. I mean, sure. What about 10 years from now? In other words, the people look at time scales that evolutionary biologists and ecologists look at very, very differently. And we're also, fracking is moving us towards peak environmental destruction. What they're doing in Canada with the oil sands and so on, destroying a huge portion of the country for the temporary use of oil. For one species in one generation. Exactly. And the, of course, I don't even want to get into the rights of the biodiversity that we're destroying people. I recently saw an article saying there's no ethical reason not to destroy biodiversity. Well, ethics are entirely invented by human beings. And there's a huge portion of our population that thinks it's unethical to wipe out the songbirds and so on and so forth, besides the fact that it's killing us at the same time. So it's a complex issue, but there are always going to be people who say, oh, well, we're going to come up with some magic. Um, we'll pull the technological rabbit out of the hat to save us. And they forget when you look at the last past technological rabbits, they've often had very nasty droppings. You talk about the foregoing population. Are we headed toward what, nine or 10 billion people? Seems More like likely 11. 
11. More likely if we avoid the huge die-off. There's almost no way, even with billions of people dying uh, prematurely, that you're going to have fewer than 7 billion people on the planet uh, at the turn of the next century unless we have a large-scale nuclear war or absolutely vast plagues or famines. Uh, and I mean losing 15 billion people or something over the period, but not likely to have a very small we, what we need to do, obviously, and should have started 40 years ago, is give women absolutely equal rights and opportunities, make sure everybody has access to modern contraception and backup abortion, uh, teach everybody that you can have lots of fun with sex without having lots of children, and uh, change our entire society. If you're just joining us, my guest at Climate One is Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, climate is often framed as a moral issue, uh, what did you think of Laudato Si or our common home from Pope Francis? Um, I wrote an article with John Hart at Berkeley whose title was changed by uh, Nature, which published it. Uh, they changed the title to something like The Pope Doesn't Do Enough for Ch- Women. But our title was Two Cheers for Pope Francis. I think he is a more flexible uh, individual than uh, than vast majority of people who've been in that position. He's well-educated. You have to understand that the Roman Catholic Church has a social science and a natural science academy. They're interested in hearing uh, what's going on in the world, and I think they're changing gradually in the right direction, but they have the same problems we have in the United States. Politics, stuffy idiots who don't understand the world. Uh, I, uh, I'm personally a fan of the Pope, and that will get him in trouble. You have this reputation as, as doctor, uh, you know, a prophet of doom. Uh, do people kind of avoid you at cocktail parties or picnics and think, oh, it's going to be, uh, you're a downer? Oh, I don't talk about these things at cocktail parties. <laughs> I just drink. <laughs> Greg Dalton has been talking with Paul Ehrlich, professor of population studies at Stanford University. Ehrlich wrote the 1968 book The Population Bomb with his wife, Anne Ehrlich. Earlier in the program, Greg talked with Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University. His latest book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.